Chapter Six of Green Mansions. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Green Mansions by W. H. Hudson, Chapter Six. Thinking about the forest girl while lying awake that night, I came to the conclusion that I had made it sufficiently plain to her how little her capricious behaviour had been relished, and had therefore no need to punish myself more by keeping any longer out of my beloved green mansions. Accordingly, next day, after the heavy rain that fell during the morning hours had ceased, I set forth about noon to visit the wood. Overhead the sky was clear again, but there was no motion in the heavy sultry atmosphere, while dark blue masses of banked-up clouds on the western horizon threatened a fresh downpour later in the day. My mind was, however, now too greatly excited at the prospect of a possible encounter with the forest nymph to allow me to pay any heed to these ominous signs. I had passed through the first strip of wood, and was in the succeeding stony, sterile space, when a gleam of brilliant colour close by on the ground caught my sight. It was a snake lying on the bare earth. Had I kept on without noticing it, I should most probably have trod upon or dangerously near it. Viewing it closely, I found that it was a coral snake, famed as much for its beauty and singularity as for its deadly character. It was about three feet long and very slim, its ground colour a brilliant vermilion, with broad jet-black rings at equal distances round its body, each black ring or band divided by a narrow yellow strip in the middle. The symmetrical pattern and vividly contrasted colours would have given it the appearance of an artificial snake made by some fanciful artist, but for the gleam of life in its bright coils. Its fixed eyes, too, were living gems, and from the point of its dangerous arrowy head the glistening tongue flickered ceaselessly as I stood a few yards away, regarding it. "'I admire you greatly, Sir Serpent,' I said, or thought. "'But it is dangerous,' say the military authorities, "'to leave an enemy or possible enemy in the rear. The person who does such a thing must be either a bad strategist or a genius, and I am neither.' Retreating a few paces, I found and picked up a stone about as big as a man's hand, and hurled it at the dangerous-looking head with the intention of crushing it, but the stone hit upon the rocky ground a little on one side of the mark, and being soft, flew into a hundred small fragments. This roused the creature's anger, and in a moment with raised head he was gliding swiftly towards me. Again I retreated, not so slowly on this occasion, and finding another stone I raised and was about to launch it when a sharp, ringing cry issued from the bushes growing near, and, quickly following the sound, forth stepped the forest girl, no longer elusive and shy, vaguely seen in the shadowy wood, but boldly challenging attention, exposed to the full power of the meridian sun, which made her appear luminous and rich in colour beyond example. Seeing her thus, all those emotions of fear and abhorrence invariably excited in us by the sight of an active venomous serpent in her path, vanished instantly from my mind. I could now only feel astonishment and admiration at the brilliant being as she advanced with swift, easy, undulating motion towards me, or rather towards the serpent which was now between us, 
moving more and more slowly as she came nearer. The cause of this sudden wonderful boldness, so unlike her former habit, was unmistakable. She had been watching my approach from some hiding-place among the bushes, ready, no doubt, to lead me a dance through the wood with her mocking voice, as on previous occasions, when my attack on the serpent caused that outburst of wrath. The torrent of ringing and, to me, inarticulate sounds in that unknown tongue, her rapid gestures, and, above all, her wide-open sparkling eyes and face aflame with colour, made it impossible to mistake the nature of her feeling. In casting about for some term or figure of speech in which to describe the impression produced on me at that moment, I think of waspish, and better still, avispada, literally the same word in Spanish, not having precisely the same meaning nor ever applied contemptuously, only to reject both after a moment's reflection. Yet I go back to the image of an irritated wasp as perhaps offering the best illustration and of some large tropical wasp advancing angrily towards me, as I have witnessed a hundred times, not exactly flying, but moving rapidly, half running and half flying, over the ground, with loud and angry buzz, the glistening wings open and agitated, beautiful beyond most animated creatures in its sharp but graceful lines, polished surface, and varied brilliant colouring and that wrathfulness that fits it so well and seems to give it additional lustre. Wonderstruck at the sight of her strange beauty and passion, I forgot the advancing snake until she came to a stop at about five yards from me. Then to my horror I saw that it was beside her naked feet. Although no longer advancing, the head was still raised high as if to strike, but presently the spirit of anger appeared to die out of it, the lifted head, oscillating a little from side to side, sunk down lower and lower to rest finally on the girl's bare instep, and lying there motionless, the deadly thing had the appearance of a gaily-coloured silken garter just dropped from her leg. It was plain to see that she had no fear of it, that she was one of those exceptional persons, to be found, it is said, in all countries, who possess some magnetic quality which has a soothing effect on even the most venomous and irritable reptiles. Following the direction of my eyes, she too glanced down, but did not move her foot. Then she made her voice heard again, still loud and sharp, but the anger was not now so pronounced. "'Do not fear, I shall not harm it,' I said in the Indian tongue. She took no notice of my speech, and continued speaking with increasing resentment. I shook my head, replying that her language was unknown to me. Then, by means of signs, I tried to make her understand that the creature was safe from further molestation. She pointed indignantly at the stone in my hand, which I had forgotten all about. At once I threw it from me, and instantly there was a change. The resentment had vanished and a tender radiance lit her face like a smile. I advanced a little nearer, addressing her once more in the Indian tongue, but my speech was evidently unintelligible to her, as she stood now glancing at the snake lying at her feet, now at me. Again I had recourse to signs and gestures, pointing to the snake, then to the stone I had cast away, I endeavoured to convey to her that in the future I would for her sake be a friend to all venomous reptiles, 
and that I wished her to have the same kindly feelings towards me as towards these creatures. Whether or not she understood me, she showed no disposition to go into hiding again, and continued silently regarding me with a look that seemed to express pleasure at finding herself at last thus suddenly brought face to face with me. Flattered at this, I gradually drew nearer, until at the last I was standing at her side, gazing down with the utmost delight into that face which so greatly surpassed in loveliness all human faces I had ever seen or imagined. And yet to you, my friend, it probably will not seem that she was so beautiful, since I have, alas, only the words we all use to paint commoner, coarser things, and no means to represent all the exquisite details, all the delicate lights and shades, and swift changes of colour and expression. Moreover, is it not a fact that the strange or unheard of can never appear beautiful in a mere description, because that which is most novel in it attracts too much attention, and is given undue prominence in the picture, and we miss that which would have taken away the effect of strangeness, the perfect balance of the parts and the harmony of the whole? For instance, the blue eyes of the northerner would, when first described to the black-eyed inhabitants of warm regions, seem unbeautiful and a monstrosity, because they would vividly see with the mental vision that unheard-of blueness, but not in the same vivid way the accompanying flesh and hair tints with which it harmonizes. Think then less of the picture as I have to paint it in words, than of the feeling its original inspired in me when, looking closely for the first time on that rare loveliness, trembling with delight, I mentally cried, Oh, why has nature, maker of so many types, and of innumerable individuals of each, given to the world but one being like this? Scarcely had the thought formed itself in my mind before I dismissed it as utterly incredible. No, this exquisite being was without doubt one of a distinct race which had existed in this little-known corner of the continent for thousands of generations, albeit now perhaps reduced to a small and dwindling remnant. Her figure and features were singularly delicate, but it was her colour that struck me most, which indeed made her differ from all other human beings. The colour of the skin would be almost impossible to describe, so greatly did it vary with every change of mood, and the moods were many and transient, and with the angle on which the sunlight touched it, and the degree of light. Beneath the trees, at a distance, it had seemed a somewhat dim white or pale grey. Near, in the strong sunshine, it was not white, but alabastrian, semi-pellucid, showing an underlying rose colour, and at any point where the rays fell direct, this colour was bright and luminous, as we see in our fingers when held before a strong firelight. But that part of her skin that remained in shadow appeared of dimmer white, and the underlying colour varied from dim rosy purple to dim blue. With the skin the colour of the eyes harmonised perfectly. At first, when lit with anger, they had appeared flame-like. Now the iris was of a peculiar soft or dim and tender red, a shade sometimes seen in flowers. But only when looked closely at could this delicate hue be discerned, the pupils being large, as in some grey eyes, and the long, dark, shading lashes at a short distance made the whole eye appear dark. 
Think not, then, of the red flower, exposed to the light and sun in conjunction with the vivid green of the foliage. Think only of such a hue in the half-hidden iris, brilliant and moist with the eye's moisture, deep with the eye's depth, glorified by the outward look of a bright, beautiful soul. Most variable of all in color was the hair, this being due to its extreme fineness and glossiness, and to its elasticity, which made it lie fleecy and loose on head, shoulders, and back. A cloud with a brightness on its surface made by the freer outer hairs, a fit setting and crown for a countenance of such rare changeful loveliness. In the shade, viewed closely, the general color appeared a slate, deepening in places to purple, but even in the shade the nimbus of free flossy hairs half-veiled the darker tints with a downy pallor, and at a distance of a few yards it gave the whole hair a vague misty appearance. In the sunlight the color varied more, looking now dark, sometimes intensely black, now of a light uncertain hue, with a play of iridescent color on the loose surface as we see on the glossed plumage of some birds, and at a short distance, with the sun shining full on her head, it sometimes looked white as the noonday cloud. So changeful was it, and ethereal in appearance with its cloud colors, that all other human hair, even of the most beautiful golden shades, pale or red, seemed heavy and dull and dead-looking by comparison. But more than form and color and that enchanting variability was the look of intelligence, which at the same time seemed complementary to, and one with the all-seeing, all-hearing alertness appearing in her face, the alertness one remarks in a wild creature, even when in repose and fearing nothing, but seldom in man, never perhaps in intellectual or studious man. She was a wild, solitary girl of the woods, and did not understand the language of the country in which I had addressed her. What inner or mind life could such a one have more than that of any wild animal existing in the same conditions? Yet looking at her face it was not possible to doubt its intelligence. This union in her of two opposite qualities, which, with us, cannot or do not exist together, although so novel, yet struck me as the girl's principal charm. Why had nature not done this before? Why in all others does the brightness of the mind dim that beautiful physical brightness which the wild animals have? But enough for me that that which no man had ever looked for or hoped to find existed here, that through that unfamiliar luster of the wild life shone the spiritualizing light of mind that made us kin. These thoughts passed swiftly through my brain as I stood feasting my sight on her bright, piquant face while she, on her part, gazed back into my eyes, not only with fearless curiosity, but with a look of recognition and pleasure at the encounter, so unmistakably friendly that, encouraged by it, I took her arm in my hand, moving at the same time a little nearer to her. At that moment a swift, startled expression came into her eyes. She glanced down and up again into my face, her lips trembled and slightly parted as she murmured some sorrowful sounds in a tone so low as to be only just audible. Thinking she had become alarmed, and was on the point of escaping out of my hands, and fearing, above all things, to lose sight of her again so soon, I slipped my arm around her slender body to detain her, 
moving one foot at the same time to balance myself, and at that moment I felt a slight blow and a sharp burning sensation shoot into my leg, so sudden and intense that I dropped my arm, at the same time uttering a cry of pain, and recoiled one or two paces from her. But she stirred not when I released her. Her eyes followed my movements. Then she glanced down at her feet. I followed her look, and figured to yourself my horror when I saw there the serpent I had so completely forgotten, and which even that sting of sharp pain had not brought back to remembrance. There it lay, a coil of its own thrown round one of her ankles, and its head, raised nearly a foot high, swaying slowly from side to side, while the swift forked tongue flickered continuously. Then, only then, I knew what had happened and at the same time I understood the reason of that sudden look of alarm in her face, the murmuring sounds she had uttered, and the downward startled glance. Her fears had been solely for my safety, and she had warned me. Too late! Too late! In moving I had trodden on or touched the serpent with my foot, and it had bitten me just above the ankle. In a few moments I began to realize the horror of my position. Must I die? Must I die? Oh, my God! Is there nothing that can save me? I cried in my heart. She was still standing motionless in the same place. Her eyes wandered back from me to the snake. Gradually its swaying head was lowered again, and the coil unwound from her ankle. Then it began to move away, slowly at first, and with the head a little raised, then faster, and in the end it glided out of sight. Gone! but it had left its venom in my blood. Oh, cursed reptile! Back from watching its retreat, my eyes returned to her face, now strangely clouded with trouble. Her eyes dropped before mine, while the palms of her hands were pressed together, and the fingers clasped and unclasped alternately. How different she seemed now, the brilliant face grown so pallid and vague-looking, but not only because this tragic end to our meeting had pierced her with pain. That cloud in the west had grown up and now covered half the sky with vast lurid masses of vapour, blotting out the sun, and a great gloom had fallen on the earth. That sudden twilight and a long roll of approaching thunder, reverberating from the hills, increased my anguish and desperation. Death at that moment looked unutterably terrible. The remembrance of all that made life dear pierced me to the core. All that nature was to me, all the pleasures of sense and intellect, the hopes I had cherished, all was revealed to me as by a flash of lightning. Bitterest of all was the thought that I must now bid everlasting farewell to this beautiful being I had found in the solitude, this lustrous daughter of the Didi, just when I had won her from her shyness that I must go away into the cursed blackness of death, and never know the mystery of her life. It was that which utterly unnerved me, and made my legs tremble under me, and brought great drops of sweat to my forehead, until I thought that the venom was already doing its swift, fatal work in my veins. With uncertain steps I moved to a stone a yard or two away, and sat down upon it. As I did so, the hope came to me that this girl— so intimate with nature, might know of some antidote to save me. Touching my leg and using other signs, I addressed her again in the Indian language. 
"'The snake has bitten me,' I said. "'What shall I do? Is there no leaf, no root, you know, that could save me from death? Help me! Help me!' I cried in despair. My signs she probably understood, if not my words, but she made no reply, and still she remained standing motionless, twisting and untwisting her fingers, and regarding me with a look of ineffable grief and compassion. Alas! It was vain to appeal to her. She knew what had happened, and what the result would most likely be, and pitied, but was powerless to help me. Then it occurred to me that if I could reach the Indian village before the venom overpowered me, something might be done to save me. Oh, why had I tarried so long, losing so many precious minutes? Large drops of rain were falling now, and the gloom was deeper, and the thunder almost continuous. With a cry of anguish I started to my feet and was about to rush away towards the village, when a dazzling flash of lightning made me pause for a second. When it vanished I turned a last look on the girl, and her face was deathly pale, and her hair looked blacker than night, and as she looked she stretched out her arms towards me, and uttered a low wailing cry. "'Good-bye forever,' I murmured, and turning once more from her, rushed away like one crazed into the wood. But in my confusion I had probably taken the wrong direction, for instead of coming out in a few minutes into the open border of the forest, and on to the savannah, I found myself every moment getting deeper among the trees. I stood still, perplexed, but could not shake off the conviction that I had started in the right direction. Eventually I resolved to keep on for a hundred yards or so, and then, if no opening appeared, to turn back and retrace my steps. But this was no easy matter. I soon became entangled in a dense undergrowth, which so confused me that at last I confessed despairingly to myself that for the first time in this wood I was hopelessly lost. And in what terrible circumstances! At intervals a flash of lightning would throw a vivid blue glare down into the interior of the wood, and only served to show that I had lost myself in a place where even at noon in cloudless weather progress would be most difficult and now the light would only last a moment, to be followed by a thick gloom, and I could only tear blindly on, bruising and lacerating my flesh at every step, falling again and again, only to struggle up and on again, now high above the surface, climbing over prostrate trees and branches, now plunged to my middle in a pool or torrent of water. Hopeless, utterly hopeless, seemed all my mad efforts, and at each pause, when I would stand exhausted, gasping for breath, my throbbing heart almost suffocating me, a dull, continuous, teasing pain in my bitten leg served to remind me that I had but a little time left to exist. By delaying at first, I had allowed my only chance of salvation to slip by. How long a time I spent fighting my way through this dense black wood I know not, perhaps two or three hours only to me the hours seemed like years of prolonged agony. At last, all at once, I found that I was free of the close undergrowth and walking on level ground, but it was darker here, darker than the darkest night, and at length, when the lightning came and flared down through the dense roof of foliage overhead, I discovered that I was in a spot that had a strange look, for the trees were very large, and grew wide apart, 
and with no undergrowth to impede progress beneath them. Here, recovering breath, I began to run, and after a while found that I had left the large trees behind me, and was now in a more open place, with small trees and bushes, and this made me hope for a while that I had at last reached the border of the forest. But the hope proved vain. Once more I had to force my way through dense undergrowth, and finally emerged on to a slope where it was open, and I could once more see for some distance around me by such light as came through the thick pall of clouds. Trudging on to the summit of the slope, I saw that there was open savannah country beyond, and for a moment rejoiced that I had got free from the forest. A few steps more, and I was standing on the very edge of a bank, a precipice not less than fifty feet deep. I had never seen that bank before, and therefore knew that I could not be on the right side of the forest. But now my only hope was to get completely away from the trees, and then to look for the village, and I began following the bank in search of a descent. No break occurred, and presently I was stopped by a dense thicket of bushes. I was about to retrace my steps when I noticed that a tall, slender tree growing at the foot of the precipice, its green top not more than a couple of yards below my foot, seemed to offer a means of escape. Nerving myself with the thought that if I got crushed by the fall I should probably escape a lingering and far more painful death, I dropped into the cloud of foliage beneath me, and clutched desperately at the twigs as I fell. For a moment I felt myself sustained, but branch after branch gave way beneath my weight, and then I only remember, very dimly, a swift flight through the air before losing consciousness. End of chapter.